0: Welcome back, everybody. This is Dave Roland, the director of litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, filling in for Gary today. And ordinarily, I try and keep a very chipper outlook. I I try to be a very optimistic person. But Brian has decided that he's going to push me into a very dark place because, number one, he brought up Congress, which never makes me happy. But then, number two, he also brought up he, uh, he I, said,
1: I apologize for bringing up uh, Tennessee.
0: Yeah. So I, he, he asks me, so Dave, how's Tennessee doing this year? For I didn't, who don't know. I
1: haven't even followed Tennessee this year. <laughs> Generally, I will, you yeah. know, follow college sports, but Tennessee has been off my radar. And so that's why, as soon as I ask you, you're, it was like not. <laughs> the
0: right question. To so, ask. so, so for listeners who are not familiar, I, I was born in East Tennessee. I, right. I am a, you know, a, a native Tennessean. Uh, and so the volunteers are my team. I, I love Mizzou. Um, I am, I am a, a secondary Mizzou fan, but, but when push comes to shove, my blood runs orange. And, uh, so, so Brian asked me this question. You got her coach doing. though, you know? Well, we, well, we, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so, of course, Tennessee had a wonderful season last year. We had a really unexpectedly fantastic season last year. So we had very high hopes coming into this season. And and we always seem to flounder against Florida. And that's exactly what happened a couple weeks ago. Um, Mizzou, on the other hand, is having a wonderful season. So congrats to the Tigers and all of you Tigers fans out there. Uh, I am just hopeful that, that Mizzou wins every game except for one on the rest of their schedule. Coming up in November... Tennessee's going to be coming to Columbia. I am hoping to be there, and I, I will say I will be wearing orange. So I hope you guys don't hate on me too much about no, no. this. But, but yeah, Mizzou is having a really splendid season. I'm hopeful it's going to continue this weekend against LSU. We'll it was a good
1: schedule. That's as much as I'm going to say. <laughs> so let's, this weekend will be the true test.
0: Well, it, it will be a big test, sure. Uh, let's let 's shift back to Congress a little bit, so one of the other things that Brian and I were talking about this morning is um it, it's such a difficult spot to be in um, you know as libertarians, constitutional conservatives, people who recognize uh The the problems of unlimited government power and particularly unlimited government spending. Um I remember when I was young driving past one of those billboards that got put up that showed what the the national debt was and right. it just kept spiraling. Yeah. Right. You know, and and, you know, this was way back in the day. It was like an old school digital billboard, you know, uh, like like an old school baseball scoreboard where the number kept changing. Mm-hmm. Um, that shows how old this, this billboard was. And and so people at the time were already saying, look, if we keep spending ourselves into this hole, one day those bills are going to come due. Um, it's, it's the same thing that's been said by one of my favorite public intellectuals, Greg Easterbrook, uh, used to be um, a, a commentator uh, for a couple of, of important media outlets. Now he's got a great Substack stack uh, called... Uh, all um all predictions wrong uh but he he was talking years ago twenty years ago about the problem of the national debt and that one day these bills will come due well hang on
1: a second yeah go ahead I take issue with that the bills are already due
0: well yes no that that is true I mean
1: uh, you can't say well, I have to deal with this later and that's what we're doing right now. It's like you someday we're going to have to pay for this so now we have to pay for this now
0: that is an excellent point Brian excellent point. One day the easy credit will run out. So, the reason that the United States can continue spending the way that it does is up till this point, um, we still have a line of credit. Like people are still willing to lend the country money. So, but we will hit a point at which the bills that are coming due will discourage. Correct. Yeah, future I, lending. It's
1: very similar to me or you going to get a car loan. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you haven't been paying your bills on time and we're lowering your or, credit rating. Or
0: even if you've been paying your bills on time, they look at your they look at the amount of debt you've already taken on and they say, eh, "We're no longer comfortable letting you get deeper into debt. We we know that there's a limit to what you can pay. And so we're no longer going to put ourselves at risk by giving you extra money that you may not be able to pay back at some point. Well, my
1: question is, what does America look like when we can no longer afford to pay our bills? What happens to the average Joe, you know, where the bank is knocking and say, hey, we need your mortgage payment this month and you don't have the funds to pay it? I mean, is it going to be... um,
0: that is Every a man very, that is a very good question. And the answer is we don't know.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, we, well, I think about it all seen, the time. And- we have seen other countries have financial crises. Um, and, and it is not pretty. Like sometimes you get into a hyperinflation situation. Um, you know, sometimes you have widespread financial collapse um where basically the financial system has to reset itself. Right. Um these things we have seen in other countries, we don't know what that's going to look like in the United States. Uh because thankfully we haven't had anything quite like it here. The Great Depression, you know, maybe mm-hmm. could be seen as as an analog, um but I don't I don't even think that that's necessarily quite the analog because at the time the federal government still had, you know, the borrowing capability but the, the concern that we've got now is that at some point, our government's no longer going to have that ability. And, and if you cannot um, potentially mitigate the damages of a financial collapse by having the government intervene in some way, which I don't think it's a good idea in the first place. Matter of fact, I was telling Brian, part of the reason we got to talking about this is I was looking at my Facebook history. And so 15 years ago, we were talking about the bailouts for the auto industry and the financial industry in 2008. And I was telling everyone, you've got to call Congress and tell them, do not bail them out. Like, this is a horrible idea. Um, but the bottom line is, is you can, to a limited extent, mitigate damage of financial collapse if you've got that tool in your toolbox. Doesn't mean it's a good policy, mm-hmm. but it, it, it can mitigate damage. If, if you don't have that tool in your toolbox, it, who knows? Who knows what's going to
1: happen? Now, if government hadn't stepped in for the bailouts of GM, I think it was... What would have happened? They would have gone bankrupt in another company, maybe Ford or somebody Mm -hmm. else would have purchased the parts, exactly the pieces, exactly. and And,
0: And our system is set up to deal with bankruptcies, even widespread bankruptcies. Our system is equipped to deal with that. Yeah, people that have managed their resources better than the the institutions that are going bankrupt will have the opportunity to step in, buy up the parts of the companies that are going bankrupt and then hopefully make wiser financial choices right. moving forward people are rewarded for and making good decisions whereas if you're bailing them out they're rewarded for making bad decisions
1: it happens all the time and i think government was so worried that because of the size of gm yeah. that it would have a the whole significant too big to uh, fail thing. yeah a significant effect on the economy globally and nationally and you know, and
0: it might have had an effect sure in, the short term, in the short but term, but then you come out of it healthier right. across the board. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's that's the problem is, is the people making the decisions in Washington, D.C. tend to have a very short-sighted view on these things. They are thinking of, we must avert pain in the short term, even if it means up making the situation worse in the long term. They take the perspective that uh john maynard Keynes once did where he says well in the long term we're all dead right you know we're going to focus on protecting our situation today but but what it's doing is it is setting us up for um you know some very very difficult times at some point in the future and it's also difficult because here we are the cassandras who are saying you know if you don't fix this Problems will result at some point in the future, but we can't tell them exactly when, and that causes right. people to say, "Oh well, if you can't tell me when it's going to happen i don 't have to worry about yeah, it yeah exactly right
1: yeah it's it's crazy do you remember uh when we had the pandemic in the first uh, I do remember few months that. and people were freaking out because we didn't know what this n- new thing was, and the grocery stores were Completely out of toilet paper. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't know what the, what the reason for the outage of toilet paper was because COVID was so new. I was like, what, do you get diarrhea really bad or something? I had no idea. And all the wipes were wiped out. And then a little bit later, I mean, ground beef gone. It was, it was a frightening situation to walk in a grocery store. I have never seen it. It was surreal. That. Yeah. I yeah. remember
0: walking into the store at that and time. It was and the, empty. The shelves were, were people, cleared. Yeah. You know, and yeah.
1: people were hoarding stuff. And it's like, okay, if this is an example of what we have in store when we default on paying our debts, I don't want to be here. <laughs> I really don't. Maybe I need to go live on a farm or something.
0: Yeah. I, I, I. Wholeheartedly endorse it. That's exactly what we've done. We we live on a farm, so so hopefully we'll we'll be able to sustain ourselves okay if this ever comes about the way that we believe it likely will. So we need to go into a, a commercial break. We're going to come back on the other side of this. We've got a few more things to talk about uh, for the rest of the show. I hope you'll stick with us for that. This is Dave Roland, the director of litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. Welcome back. This is Dave Roland, the director of litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, filling. in for Gary Nolan today, uh, so we were talking before the break and uh, for the last couple of segments, kind of about the, uh, the the challenges that the country is likely to face at some point in the future, um, because we just cannot continue spending uh, willy nilly and and digging a deeper and deeper financial hole for the country. Um, and, and we were kind of speculating about you know, goodness, what are things going to look like when this actually happens? Now, this is going to be an odd transition, I'm telling you. And it, To begin with, there was a very famous radio show 85 years ago this month that anticipated a very similar kind of shock to American society. You may recall... Uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast. Orson Welles. Orson Welles, right? So, so in this broadcast, they kind of adapted the H.G. Wells novel, War of the Worlds, that anticipates a Martian invasion, and they made it into this radio show, and it scared the fool <laughs> out of people. Because they missed the introduction where Orson Welles explains this is an right. adaptation, right? And and all they hear is <laughs> is these radio announcers who are talking about these Martians who have landed and are rampaging through the countryside and destroying New York City and all this, and people freaked out. So uh, that, of course, was anticipating a, a potential eventual uh, happening or whatever. So the reason I bring this up, Brian... Is it's this weekend? We
1: have a national alert today. At no, well, yeah, that, that too. <laughs>
0: that too. Actually, I hadn't thought about that, but yes. that's that's an even better point. No, so, um, listeners to the show, regular listeners to the show, will know that I am quite active uh, in a performing arts community in Mexico, Missouri, where I live. And this weekend, we are doing a performance of the historic War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Um, oh, that is cool. It is cool. It's really cool. And so if you happen to have some time on your hands this weekend and you want to make a short jaunt up to Mexico, Missouri, um, you can go to PresserPAC.com. That is presser, dot com, And you can get tickets to come and see the War of the Words, Worlds radio broadcast. Uh, the shows are going to be Friday night at 7 Saturday night at seven, and then we're doing a matinee on Sunday at two o'clock. The show's not very long, uh, but it's it's actually it's really cool. Uh, we're going to have some live music there, a live band performing part of um, part of the show, and then you know we're going to be doing the traditional uh, script for the broadcast. And it, it really has come together nicely. So I highly encourage people, uh, if you're interested, to come up to the War of the Worlds production. By Professor, uh, by a Presser Performing Arts Center in Mexico. All right. So I got that plug out of the way. Um, there were a couple of other things I wanted to touch on this morning. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the public interest litigation model, um, that, that Sam McRoberts over at the Kansas Justice Institute and, and myself with the Free Freedom Center of Missouri are pursuing. And, Part of the way that we can advance liberty in our states and in our societies is making sure that we're getting out and talking to people um, about uh, the constitutional principles that we're trying to vindicate and also sometimes the, the statutory tools... That we have to help hold our government transparent and accountable to the people. Uh, I had a great opportunity just a couple of weekends ago to go over to St. Louis where the Missouri Press Association was having its annual meeting. And I was invited to be on a panel discussion where we were talking about Missouri's sunshine law at fifty. So the Sunshine Law was adopted fifty years ago uh and uh they, they just wanted to ask some experts on this uh statute questions about how can journalists and citizens use the sunshine law to help keep people in check, especially help keep government officials in check. And uh a really interesting proof of concept happened to come around. One of the things that I told this this meeting room full of journalists was Sometimes you run into government entities that um, really do not want to give you access to the records that you've requested. Sometimes they will tell you, oh, well, we're not going to be able to provide this to you for months, sometimes up to a year. Uh, sometimes they'll say, well, we can provide you these records, but it's going to cost you thousands upon thousands of dollars to do it. Um, And and this can be a real roadblock for citizens who are trying to understand what the government is doing with their money, with the authority that the people have given these public officials. Well, we run into a a situation with the attorney general's office in uh, Jefferson City where uh, people would submit relatively simple Sunshine Law requests and the response they were getting from the Attorney General's office was, we're not going to be able to produce these records until April next year. And, uh, and that's just crazy. It's crazy. Now, now, the attorney general's office for their part said that they were dealing with a backlog that was left when the prior attorney general, Eric Schmidt, now U.S. Senator Eric Schmidt, left office. They said, well, he had a couple hundred uh, requests that he had not yet finished taking care of. And since now Attorney General Andrew Bailey is coming into office, we've had a couple hundred more requests coming in. And it's just taking us a while to get through them. That's what they said. But one of the things I suggested to this room full of journalists is we have a little-known, little-used law on the books in Missouri that specifies, it actually predates the Sunshine Law. It specifies that any citizen in the state who wants to can go to the office of a public official and demand to inspect their public records in person. And it is actually a misdemeanor offense For a public official to deny a citizen the right to inspect public records in person at the place that they're being held. And what's more, the law specifically says that any public official who denies a citizen uh, the right to inspect these records is subject to impeachment. So this is a very powerful statute rarely used. Uh, I had a journalist call the other week and they said, well, what what about the attorney general's office? Do you think that maybe... We could ask to review records in person at the Attorney General's office and kind of get around this extraordinary timeline that we've been given. Sure enough, one of those journalists contacted me yesterday and he said, You know what? I contacted the Attorney General's office and said, Hey, there's this statute that gives me a right to come into your office and review these records in person. And to their credit, the Attorney General's office said, You know what? That's correct. Come in. You know, on this date, and by golly, we will let you look at the records in person. So I, I raise this point, number one, to point out um, that's the value of having a public interest group in your state that is devoted to making sure that people understand the tools, the constitutional tools, the statutory tools that help them to keep government in check. But number two, um, it's it's also I think it speaks quite highly of the attorney general's office that they recognized that this is a right that citizens have and that they are in fact stepping up to make sure that this journalist is going to have the chance to review those records so um, I'm very pleased with all of these developments we are about to go into another commercial break we got about a half hour left in the show come back with us on the other side of this I've got a few more uh, cases to discuss that I am dealing with here in the, in the state now some of them may get your blood boiling I think they might but you know of course that's why we're here is to not only to bring your your attention to these things but also to explain what I'm doing what the Freedom Center of Missouri is doing to try and deal with these issues and make sure that these government actors are indeed kept in check that they are held accountable to the constitution that they are held transparent to the people so that we can play our roles in our self-governing society in deciding who gets to hold these offices, who gets to wield the authority that we have given them. So we're going into a commercial break. Come back on the other side and we will continue this conversation. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. Welcome back. This is Dave Roland, the director of litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, filling in for Gary Nolan today on The Gary Nolan Show. Uh, so we have been talking about all kinds of various frustrations we have with the government. And uh, I've, I've got a couple more to bring to the table. Uh, there is a situation that's developed in the city of St. Louis just over the last couple of days uh, that, that I want to highlight here. Um, you know, people who listen to me regularly on the show they they know that uh, I've I've got a soft spot for homeless people. Uh, I understand that a lot of people are frustrated when they encounter homeless people. They don't like to deal with them. Um, but my my basic standpoint is: look, people have a right to exist, um, and and that means they have a right to exist on public property. Uh, As long as they're not obstructing the sidewalk, as long as they're not violating some other law, you know, basically doing something that harms somebody else, um, they've got a right to exist. Uh, So in St. Louis City, um, the city has, number one, been actively trying to shut down efforts to help the homeless in various ways. We litigated a case against them uh, that was trying to prevent people from feeding the homeless providing food to hungry people um and there's also a group called uh the new life evangelistic center that had been providing a shelter for homeless people in other words folks who didn't have somewhere else safe to stay they could go to the building owned by the nlec and um stay the night and and be protected from the elements uh, be protected from potentially other people that were interested in in harming or abusing them in some way. Um, but the city shut it down, in part because the neighbors complained. The neighbors didn't like the idea of this homeless shelter being located where it was. But when you shut down a group that is trying to help the homeless people, it doesn't mean the homeless people go away. It just means that they are pushed into Less workable, less uh, advantageous circumstances. So a bunch of these homeless people who still do not have a place to go in downtown St. Louis, decided they were going to set up a uh, a camp over next to city hall. and so for for several weeks, they had been uh, putting up tents and and you know staying sleeping uh, right over in full view of city hall. And City Hall didn't want to do anything about it until just a couple of days ago. Mayor Tashara Jones, um, who likes to bill herself as very progressive and compassionate, uh, decided at 10 o'clock at night that she was going to send the police in and clear all of these people away. Now, what they ended up, (laughs) the way they justified this is they declared the area that these homeless folks were staying to be a park. Now, it hadn't been a park prior to uh, this declaration, but they declared it to be a park, and then said park hours are you know between this time and this time, and if you remain in this area after the park quote unquote park closes, uh, then then we're allowed to get rid of you, and uh, and so they they basically fabricated a justification for getting rid of all of these people that were quite frankly an embarrassment to the administration. Now. Why did they choose to do this this week? It just so happens that Vice President Kamala Harris and the Democratic National uh, Committee are going to be paying a visit to St. Louis this week. Matter of fact, I think they're in town today. Um, And so I don't think it's any coincidence at all that Mayor Jones decided she would be embarrassed if these Democratic politicians came to her city and saw the consequences of her administration's policies, staring them in the face in the form of these homeless people. And so um, what she has done is to greatly complicate and and make the situation worse for these people who already didn't have any place to go. And, and I find the whole thing completely appalling. Um, but I do want to remind listeners, this is the consequence of policies that cities adopt, right? Um, When you discourage people from creating uh, cheap housing, which that's what zoning laws do. Zoning laws prevent people from building enough housing that the cost of housing goes down and becomes affordable for people. When you shut down homeless shelters that are trying to give these folks a place to go, a safe place to exist, What do you think is going to happen? They're going to end up on the streets. And so Tashara Jones, instead of just trying to create this cosmetic cleanup, pushing people from one part of the city to another, maybe adopt policies that will actually address the fundamental problem, that being governmental intervention. You know, clear the way, For the market to work, creating affordable housing for people who need it, clear the way for private charity to try and address the needs of these folks who cannot currently afford their own places to stay. And a lot of that problem is going to be fixed. But unfortunately, uh, common sense is not as common as one might hope. Um, So... That's a situation I think people need to have on their radars. Um, I also wanted to let people know I like to talk about the cases that the Freedom Center of Missouri is litigating. One of the ones that we've talked about a lot uh, over the last few months is uh, our case in Edgar Springs, Missouri, down in Phelps County, where uh, a city got tired of one particular critic and they decided that the way they were going to solve it was just by banning her from City Hall. This was Rebecca Varney, uh, who grew up in Edgar Springs from from the time she was five years old. Uh, that was quite a while ago. Um, and she had never really been much of an activist up until 2018 when she got a ticket that she swears was unjustified. Uh, she got a ticket for rolling through a stop sign and she felt like she had definitely stopped. And she thought that the local police department was really using these citations as a fundraising vehicle. So she started looking into it. She went down to city hall and she was reviewing public records just the way I suggested that that uh, citizens could and should. And what she was finding is that sure enough, prior to 2018, uh, the the police in Edgar Springs only gave out maybe six or seven. Uh, of these citations per year for rolling through a stop sign starting in 2018 they were giving out dozens of these every month so the the number of citations they were issuing was just staggering and they were charging 90 dollars a pop for these citations and so the city was generating thousands upon thousands of dollars for itself um, basically this is policing for profit and Rebecca Varney was calling them on it. She said, that's not right. And she was going into city hall and getting copies of these public records so she could take them out and show her fellow citizens, you know, what was going on, how the, the police department was abusing its authority. Well, do you think that the city officials liked that? No, they absolutely did not. And the way that they decided to solve this particular inconvenience was they banned Rebecca Varney from going to city hall. Now, we had a trial in this case back uh, just at a month ago. It was September 1st. We had the trial. And just as I expected it would, the evidence that was offered said Rebecca Varney never raised her voice. She was not hooting and hollering. She wasn't cussing at people or abusing them. She was simply asserting her rights, rights that she had under under the Constitution, rights that she had under the Sunshine Law. And for that, the city banned her from coming to City Hall. One of the other interesting things that I didn't expect to come out at trial is that, in fact, there were instances of other citizens who had gone into City Hall who had been shouting and hollering and cussing at people and had to be removed from City Hall. Did they get banned from going back? No, they did not. They did not. The city singled out Rebecca Varney ...for this punishment when people who had behaved far worse were never subjected to that kind of punishment. And by the way, how long did this punishment last? Four years. More than four years Rebecca Varney was prohibited from going and reviewing records at City Hall... ...at the same times and in the same manner that every other citizen would have been allowed to do so. So uh, we just filed... The reason I bring this up is, is just on Monday... We filed our proposed judgment in this case, uh, saying that the city of Edgar Springs not only violated her rights under the Sunshine Law, but also they violated her First Amendment right. They were punishing her because she had been speaking out against her local government. They were punishing her because she had circulated a petition to have an audit done of the city. Um, And also they were punishing her uh, because... They were treating her different from every other citizen. They singled her out for punishment. That's an equal protection violation. And so I am hopeful and somewhat confident that the court's going to come back, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, maybe maybe as many as a couple of months, um, and give us our, our final ruling saying that, yes, indeed, the city of Edgar Springs violated her rights and that they're going to be held to account so uh if you will keep on listening to this show on thursday mornings gary will uh will have me on and hopefully we'll be able to share news of that victory in the not too distant future keep listening we've got one more segment to go in this show i'm looking forward to sharing it with you this is dave roland filling in for gary nolan on the zimmer radio network we are back this is dave roland filling in for gary nolan uh I have been talking a lot about the the different cases that the Freedom Center has been working on uh, and and the situations that we're involved with. I do want to kind of close out the show today by um, highlighting some important Supreme Court cases that we're not involved with, but that I I think are going to have a very high impact on uh, citizens' freedoms going forward. So, So you may or may not realize that the U.S. Supreme Court operates uh, differently from a lot of state courts. They uh, have terms that begin on the 1st of October each year, uh, and then they last until right around the end of June each year. And so basically all the cases that the Supreme Court takes for a given term, they hear arguments uh, between October and usually late March, early April, and then they issue all of those opinions by the end of the term In June or early July sometimes. Um, And so when we talk about a Supreme Court term, that's what we're talking about. So for this term, they have taken on uh, a number of really important cases, uh, many of them having to do with the Second Amendment. Um, So... You may remember that uh, it was roughly 10 years ago now, well, a little more than 10 years ago now, that the Supreme Court officially recognized that the Second Amendment um, creates or rather recognizes an individual right to keep and bear arms uh, that can be asserted against the government. And then since then, in, in the Heller case, the court has been in this ongoing process of trying to sort out what exactly that means. What does it mean that the federal constitution uh recognizes and protects this individual right to keep and bear arms. They were silent for quite some time. They they took two cases in rapid succession, the Heller case and the McDonald case, um, that, that kind of firmed up the contours of this right, or the basics of this right. And then they didn't take any more Second Amendment cases for several years. Now, they did issue the Bruin case just a couple of years ago, um, and that has helped to clarify that when lower courts are assessing a Second Amendment claim, um, they've got to look to the history and tradition of regulation of firearms uh, in this country uh, to figure out whether the kind of new regulations that are being challenged are permissible under the Second Amendment. So we've got a couple of cases that have now been uh, put on the docket for this term that are raising that specific question and uh, so we're going to find out we're going to get some more guidance from the court about uh, those second amendment rights but in the meantime there are cases kicking around down in the lower courts that may well get up to the U.S. Supreme Court this term um, that raise really important questions in particular um, about the right of felons convicted felons uh, to possess firearms so this, there's been a law on the books for a very long time, a federal law on the books that, um, severely curtails circumstances under which someone who's been convicted of a, of a felony can possess a firearm. Um, there are also laws on the books that prohibit people who have been charged with a felony. From possessing firearms. This was an issue that got raised this last week where, uh, former President Trump was going to a gun store and they, uh, had a gun that I, if I recall correctly, had his image on it. I think the gun had, had kind of been decorated with his image and they handed it to him to hold. And he said at that point that he wanted to buy it. Problem is, is he's under felony indictment, uh, in, in several courts and so under federal law it would certainly not be legal for him to purchase the gun and technically it might not have even been legal for him to handle it but then there's the question of whether those laws that prohibit this are constitutional now it also comes up in the context of Hunter Biden so Hunter Biden has been charged with uh, unlawfully possessing a firearm while he was addicted to Uh, illegal substances. So I know a lot of people are thrilled to see some level of accountability for the president's son, but at the same time, this is a really questionable federal law. Uh, I happen to think that it's not constitutional to tell somebody that they are deprived of a constitutional right simply because they, at times, might be under the influence of narcotics, It's one thing, and this is the argument that's been made uh, in Hunter Biden's case and elsewhere. There are times, of course, when if you are intoxicated, if you are under the influence, you could very seriously be a present danger to the people around you, to yourself or the people around you. That's why we don't typically allow you to drive a vehicle while you are under the influence, because of the danger that you could pose to yourself and others. But... If someone is not actively under the influence, then it's not clear whether there's any justification at all for telling them they cannot exercise their right to possess a firearm. And so uh, I would not be surprised in any way if the U.S. Supreme Court ends up taking one of these cases that, that will assess, number one, can you prevent someone from exercising their right to keep and bear arms when they are sober? Number two, can you per- prevent someone from possessing uh, a firearm when they have been charged with an offense, especially if the offense has not been proven? And then number three, even if someone has been proven to have committed a, fi- a felony, what if it's a nonviolent felony? What, what if it was tax evasion? What if it was uh, sending an email that didn't have... Uh, an appropriate disclaimer on it, which is a felony under certain circumstances. Can you really tell someone that they have surrendered a fundamental constitutional right simply because they've done something that didn't actually put anybody else in harm's way that doesn't suggest in any way that this person is a danger to themselves or others. Um, these are the kinds of questions that the Supreme Court is going to need to answer going forward. And I got to tell you, I am optimistic. I think that the current lineup of Supreme Court justices um, is likely to rule that these restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms are are probably unconstitutional. So that is something we all need to be keeping our eye on and anticipating as this Supreme Court term moves forward. Uh, hopefully we'll be getting some of these answers. Uh, I also wanted to highlight some of the excellent work being done by my friends and former colleagues at the Institute for Justice. Uh, just in the last couple of days, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to take an important property rights case that IJ has been handling in in that case. um, Oh, we're running out of time. So I'm not going to be able to describe it. I'll I'll have to talk about it when I'm on the show with Gary at some point in the future. Uh, If you would listen in tomorrow, I'm going to be on the air with Gary during the 11 o'clock hour. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. We'll talk to you coming, coming up. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan.